Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Sheila Robotham is a writer, an historian, an activist, and an internationally renowned socialist feminist. In 1970, she participated in the first British Women's Liberation Conference at Ruskin College, Oxford. And two years later, she published Women, Resistance and Revolution, a pathbreaking analysis of women's participation in radical upheavals that was immediately translated into multiple languages and is now recognized as a feminist classic. She's since published over 20 books, including Woman's Consciousness, Man's World, Dreamers of a New Day, and Edward Carpenter, Life of Liberty and Love, which won the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Biography in 2008. In 2000, she published a memoir, Promise of a Dream, which followed her first steps as a political radical and as an activist for women's liberation over the course of the 1960s. She's now followed it with a second volume, Daring to Hope, a year-by-year exploration of her life in the 1970s, when she gained a global reputation as a writer and activist for whom women's liberation and socialist revolution inextricably went hand in hand. The book tracks a decade of tireless activism, including campaigns to unionize night cleaners and in defense of reproductive freedom, And in mapping the evolution of her feminist thinking, she offers frank observations on the intimate challenges of navigating a life devoted to transformation in which the personal was understood to be political. I spoke to Sheila Robotham in person at her home in Bristol. You talk in the introduction about the way that Promise of a Dream was kind of in part provoked by your frustration with the sort of narrow and truncated ways that the 60s was portrayed, even by people celebrating it. And I wondered if there was a a sort of analogous frustration that you felt with the way that the women's liberation movement or or the politics of the 70s has been remembered or critiqued or... I suppose there's a general right wing dismissal of the 70s. And for a long time, there was an alternative dismissal because of the contempt for 1970s fashion. <laughs> but I, and I had realised that there was now a new generation who were getting interested in um, the history, history of women's liberation. And I, I felt that there are local archives, but not that many accounts by individuals who were involved in it actually and I suppose it's partly because a lot of time has to pass before something turns into history sort of mysterious passing of time and then things cease to be contemporary memory and become history and I thought well time is passing and it's a good idea if if we start not just me but other people start to write down their experiences because that gives younger historians an insight into the inner feelings that people had and the contradictions and um, the complexities that 
we encountered as well as our politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I just in listening to you right now, I realised I hadn't really thought about this so much before. I, I interviewed Jeffrey Weeks, maybe a, it was before COVID, obviously a couple of years ago, and and he was writing a memoir at the time, which yes. has since been published. Yeah. And and one of the things that really interested me, I think that interested him, was that he was both a chronicler of sexual revolution but also a participant in yes. it and that this first generation uh, 1970s generation of new left historians you know kind of straddles that this this line of um because there was so much emphasis on on transformation within the personal that they were both chronicling a history and aware that they were making it and 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 of course that's true for you as well yes we did i think my generation had a few older women, like D- Doris Lessing or Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote personally and politically about being women. But um, because we, because a movement appeared, we had a, a sense of c- collective power, I think, from being participants. And that enabled a lot of us to do all kinds of things that we probably wouldn't have done without it well undoubtedly I'm sure we wouldn't have done without it yeah so you you do speak in the book about the kind of wanting to sort of reclaim a certain depth and breadth of the women's movements kind of projects the scope of their thinking I mean that very much I think what makes the memoir so riveting in part is that you get this sort of the reader gets a very this sense of lived experience of some of, of people who are actively trying to think through and I think you say at one point you know I was trying to make sense of everything you know trying to <laughs> connect everything especially everything at else. the beginning yeah. I was I, I slightly I feel a bit sheepish about the fact that I was so confident that we, nobody else had solved these things and we were going to do it mm. when I was in my, still in my 20s. <laughs> though, although one of the things that comes out in, in the book is your discovery of, of foremothers and predecessors who had been involved from all kinds of been trying to kind of join up different yeah. progressive movements. Quite often... Uh, as time went by, I was bumping into these older women who, and, and in fact, the, the women who were really quite old in their 70s and 80s connected much more easily to our generation. They were like the grandmothers. And the women who had been through the 30s, I think, and been and put anti-fascism and um, left politics to the fore, were, were thought we were really sort of a bit whingy about our personal life. I, did, I think they felt we had it quite easy. And I think now I can understand that response more, strangely because COVID has made me understand more about what it must have been like to have war for six years. It totally disrupted a lot of people's lives of course men but also women and they stopped studying they they went off and did all these different jobs and and then after the war nobody wanted to know about it very much including my generation mm. 
because we got a bit fed up with everyone saying in the war there was this and that. And and it, it also comes across, I suppose, in your um, uh, your work on Edward Carpenter and Stella Brown, and just finding this generation for whom, you know, the 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 personal in the realm of relationships was as much a part of their kind of transformational politics. Yes, and uh, so, Dora Russell too. Yes. I suppose one of the things that comes that comes across really strongly in the book, again on a kind of the lived experience level and, and almost sort of play by play, but your gradual sensing or maybe the gradual development of schisms within the women's movement. Yes. And what was it? Well, I guess there's so many questions about that. What was that like at the time to, to find that and to find your feet in it? And what's it been like to write about it at a distance of 50 years? The, the main difficulty came, you know, from the late 70s because there was a, uh, such a complete contrast in how somebody of my kind of politics that was socialist as well as feminist saw how to make changes. And a group who were called the Revolutionary Feminists who were not really just sort of saying you've got to think about women primarily but they were saying that men were, were inherently violent and I, I think to say that any group from the point of view of how they're born is inherently anything is a, a really it's a, a recipe for moving to the right because it, it locks you into a defensive position which makes it impossible to have any kind of communication or uh, alliances and so I was, was opposed to that politics as quite a lot of other women who were socialist feminists were but I, I think to go back to the earlier question the scope of, of what we were doing people think of, of women's liberation I think probably in terms of meeting in the consciousness raising groups and, and that was an innovatory form of politics that we adopted from America and it enabled women to talk about things that were not de defined as politics which was a great release and then to connect them to what was actually happening to not just an individual but a group of women but quite quickly I mean more or less immediately we were also going out to campaign for things that were problems in the area I mean, where we lived so there was a move between the little personal groups and a more traditional form of politics of going out with leaflets as people did at that time and issues to do with childcare were, were really pressing housing um, there was I mean as now there was a desperate need for housing in all the big cities and because I lived in Hackney, I was aware, having been in the 60s trying to get a movement among private tenants through the Labour Party, I went around just knocking on people's doors and discovered how the new arrivals from the Caribbean were living in appalling conditions, with wallpaper just coming off the wall because the walls were so wet. And I'd never, ever seen... I mean, I, I didn't live in great luxury. I originally lived in a fairly seedy sort of flat in Hackney opposite Hackney Down Station, but, I mean, nothing. And it rattled. It's the, the building used to rattle when the trains came by. But not... I mean, not that 
terrible, terrible housing, overcrowded too, because people had their gas cookers on the landing. So that had been a revelation. I knew that the conditions were bad and people were still campaigning through squatting groups and housing associations and things like that in Hackney and in Brixton. And did you find your... I mean, how did your ideas about the necessary alliance between feminism and socialism, did that sort of develop more layers to it as the decade wore on from those sorts of encounters and experiences? I, I was influenced by Dorothy Thompson, who, having looked at women's involvement in Chartism, although she was aware that towards the end that they did raise the issue of equal rights politically, but she was really interested in women's action in communities and in crowd action uh, around consumption prices and also around the poor law, which was so oppressive to women in working-class families. And I, like other socialist feminist historians, got interested in looking at the movements that working-class women had created in the past and in Dreamers of a New Day, I picked up some of those threads later and went on looking at some of the ideas that came from these other kinds of movements among women for emancipation. So I sort of feel, I mean, I don't really get terribly steamed up whenever when people just refer to feminism, but, I mean, feminism is one aspect of the kinds of movements that women have created, and all these other movements can interconnect with an awareness of yourself as women. It sometimes can go the other way. Instead of sitting about thinking about yourself as a woman and then going off to campaign, that you get involved in the practical campaign. And I think movements like tenants' movements and movements that women have had often in support of men who were affected by bad conditions at work, not not only just their own struggles around issues to do with danger or at sea, like the women, like Lil the Locker in Hull Trawlers, when they tried to resist the danger. And movements, I remember, Spare Rib is a wonderful source for all these campaigns, actually, like asbestos in building. I find it good to not get totally fixated on feminism and see that if you say socialist feminism, it can spread to a wider picture of women's resistance to various forms of social injustice. To what extent was there a kind of affiliation between campaigners against racism or anti-racist struggles in the in the seventies and and women's liberation groups? It, I mean, the connections were actually really strong, but the participation of women who were not white, either who were of Asian descent or of Afro-Caribbean or African descent in Britain, was quite small. But then it was the same case that would be true of white working-class women. So I think that gradually small groups started to appear. But initially, certainly the group that formed in Islington defined themselves in relation to black power and race and not to do with anything to do with 
women's liberation or feminism. But I think that varied, that different groups took a more feminist perspective. But they were quite small in the early 70s, those groups. But the general support for anti-racist politics just went on right through the 70s. I mean, we were marching against fascism, which had taken up not only anti-Semitism, but also race in terms of people's descent from Africa or South Asia. I mean, it was so automatic that it was not stated very much. And I think that's probably why it means that people think that we didn't think about it, but it was something that, I mean, we'd grown out of, in many ways, a movement that had spread from the States to other countries, and also were influenced by movements against colonialism, which raised what now would be called identity and how you're represented. But we didn't really have that language, but we could recognise that. The white women who were somewhat displaced because of education, we didn't fit into the old way of being, like mothers who'd not been able to get to university. I mean, it was such a small proportion, even in the early 60s when I went to university. So we were kind of odd. And I think our oddness made us susceptible to question both society and our own position. And in doing that, we found voices from movements that were talking about how people related to them and how they were regarded, which was a bit different from the conventional trade union politics that we knew through socialism. But actually, really, people's responses to race were things that I first encountered when I was a child in Leeds, both anti-Semitism and attitudes to people from the Caribbean who were moving. I became slightly aware as a child that something was happening and then became critical. It was also in the context of the war in Algeria and I read an account of torture by the British to the Mau Mau in Kenya and also of French in North Africa. So I read that before I was even a socialist and we saw the the civil rights demonstrations on black and white television. We'd never ever seen anything like that and saw the uh, dogs attacking people. It was just taken for granted. That's so interesting. I think also one of the things that that really struck me, you've titled the memoir Daring to Hope and early on in the introduction you quote this wonderful passage from E.P. Thompson enduring militancy is built not upon negative anxieties but upon positive aspirations it's always the business of the left to foster the utmost aspiration compatible with existing reality and then some more beyond <laughs> and and that that wonderful sense of a quest for more beyond being what energized you and you say partly because you hadn't known war and you hadn't known adversity Mm. in quite the way that an earlier generation had and so when you talk about you know this kind of a milieu of progressive ideas that were so ingrained in the fabric of you know what you'd grown up imbibing that it was kind of taken for granted It, it seems aligned with that sense of aspirations and a sense of unlimited possibilities for bringing all these desires for change together. Yes, I can remember when I was young because we took the sense of possibility and choice which actually was some kind of sociological accident that my generation stumbled into really 
because of the expansion of education. But we just took that, we just thought, yes, it's just happening, and that's, that's us going into it. And I remember Edward one day, it couldn't have been that old, you know, 20 or something, and he said, your generation have so many more choices than we had. Because, of course, when he was young, he'd been sent off to Italy to fight. I couldn't quite imagine that. I mean, even though that was... I mean, the war was still there in the objects that were still around in my childhood. The carpet was still there in the cellar for when there were air raids and the helmet from the home guard was on the door of the cellar still. (laughs) And I had it when I was four. I can remember a garment that I really liked, which was my siren suit which had a hood and a zip-up, which was nothing very unusual, really. Nowadays, it's a normal child's garment. But uh, at that time, it had trousers and uh, zip-up, so I could run around, and I really liked that siren suit. And I remember one early memory, which was 1947, in which I fell into what seemed like an enormous snowdrift, because the winter was very bad in uh, Leeds. I think... To go back to the issue of race, I, I think that one of the things that was a problem was that because we developed a politics from personal experience, the personal experience of whoever it was who was inventing it became a new type of statement, a political statement. But we'd originally seen that as something that was very fluid because we didn't have answers and we hardly knew what questions we were trying to ask. So it, it felt as though we were discovering. And the, but I think to a generation of young black women by the mid-70s, they looked at what seemed like a, a sort of credo, and it was taking a certain assumptions for granted. And those assumptions were... I mean, we were very aware that we would try not to be middle class in our assumptions but we were less aware of the fact that we could be generalising from the point of view of what were the priorities for white women. And a very simple example of that was in the abortion campaign when it was black women who said that we've got to think about the eugenic aspects of abortion as well. We can't just see it as a... And we were sort of vaguely aware of that historically, but it wasn't something that was... a an urgent question to us. So I think that was that areas of disregard because of our particular perspective, which was, I mean, the core of the women's liberation movement was mainly lower middle class to middle class type women because that hardly any working class women got through into higher education. It was That was an even smaller minority, really. Certainly in the 60s, by the 70s, perhaps there's a change. One of the things that stands out in in this memoir, as with Promise of a Dream, um, and that goes hand in hand with the emphasis on the politics of the personal, is that you are interested in in bringing the whole of your life experience, or at least your romantic relationships. You become a mother during these years. One thing that runs throughout is the, again, in the lived experience of this, the complexity of trying to live out a sense of equality or parity or non-possessiveness in the emotional realm that this turns out to be more complicated than people had anticipated and complicated in friendships 
as well. If everything is political, is personal, then things become quite fraught quite easily. Yeah. And what, what, what was it like to try to figure that out as a young 20-something, 30-something <laughs> woman? I think because the source of our expression of different... We felt we were a bit different from older style feminists actually we thought we'd got this new sort of women's liberation thing so we sort of felt we'd invented this thing completely new the ideas that no other women had ever thought before and of course being a historian I discovered quite quickly that wasn't the case the problem of saying the person is political was that we could generalize as I said before from a narrow and particular experience I mean the slogan was not invented by the women's movement, it came from the American New Left, who had wanted to take into account personal and subjective experience because of the impact of McCarthy, I think, mm. and the rejection of Stalinism. But one problem is, somebody made the point, you know, if you say the person is political, then you could go out and, and meet a lover who you thought you were meeting, and then some other person would turn up. And they could say, well, the person is political, so it, don't really, it doesn't really matter who comes. And actually, people do have personal preferences in these things. So there was that kind of problem. I think that there was, it was difficult to completely overcome the feeling that you wanted the person that you wanted. So from that, it's, it's quite difficult not to have some feelings of possession. And in fact the feelings of possession I think can be very much reduced unless you are totally under threat and as soon as a person feels they're going to lose someone that they desperately want to be with then it's very hard to overcome such feelings but in the better times I think that it's possible not to have the extremes of jealousy and possession that exist in our society because they're so bound up with power and control of men over women particularly but sometimes just of individuals and what about being a mother how did that affect your feminism particularly you had a son and now you've got a grandson yes um, can you look back on that and I mean it's a big question but can you look back on that and see how that might have affected your politics or or shifted them in some way I think I wasn't I mean I have I'd seen friends with small children but looking at it from the outside is quite different from living in the closeness to to a baby and and a small child it's as though you there's this little person who is actually totally connected to you still and so you just can't move around in in the same way that you did when there was just you when will was little i tried to take him i describe in the book trying to take him to meetings and things and sometimes it was okay, but there was one meeting in particular when the speaker was reading a, a rather academic paper, and the meeting was very crowded, and I had to feed Will because he was going to start sort of making a noise. And so I fed him on the floor in the midst of a great crowd in this room, and then a woman went to sleep because the room was very hot and was snoring like and so it's this kind of what I don't know the musical term is a contrapuncture or something but there was this rhythm of noise it's a snore and the sucking and this woman reading this paper and I thought oh no let me get out and I couldn't get out without causing even more of a commotion <laughs> 
So that was a, a revelation that being responsible for this tiny person makes for a different kind of notion of yourself as an individual. And at times I did long to have space. I think probably most mothers of young children do, just longing to have a little space to try to collect my thoughts. But I was helped a lot because Paul Will's father did half and then there were people in the house who would come and look after Will so we could go out. Um, we went out one night a week and they took it in turns. I think there were about three people in the house who did that. So it's part of that kind of sense of mutuality and collectivity that was also a political... Um, yes. Ours was, ours was not a, a total collective kind of commune in the sense that some places were because I mean as one guy in the house said um, you never took the decision to the house meeting <laughs> to have a baby so people did a certain amount but they didn't behave as though they themselves had a child but the bonds that were formed were really close Will is still in contact my son's still in contact with the people in the, in the house room we didn't do all the changes we wanted, but some changes in how people could live were made. And we, we were trying to have a larger group of people involved with looking after uh, children. And I, I still think that is a, is a good idea because the intensity, uh, I mean, important as that connection is, the mother to the child, it can become something that makes it very difficult for women to return to the external world really quite apart from the practicalities but I think emotionally I wanted to ask you a slightly different question but you're a you're an incredibly prolific writer I, I don't think I had realized quite how prolific until I was preparing for the interview and and you know you've written biography journalism history poetry plays what do you think drives you as as a writer? I, I think I would have loved to be able to do more creative writing, but I, I don't think I felt that I had the aptitude to... I, I couldn't really write fiction, I don't think. I don't know whether it, at some point in my life earlier I might have been able to, but I think being trained as a historian means that I'm always make, wanting to make sure that some... trying to make sure that things are accurate. I get very upset by things that are not but it, I mean, it is easy to make mistakes I know but sometimes there's a kind of way now where people don't even bother so I'm, I'm too bothered about that I think I'm too much of a historian I've always liked history that deals with the drama of people's lives more than a kind of soci sociological approach to history so I like the stories I love people's stories. And was that true? For, because you say something in the book about, you know, you're, you don't know where your interest in history came from, but it was there from very, very early on. And, and yeah. that's how your imagination works. It is a historical imagination. Yes, I think it was this extraordinary revelation when I was little. I was, before I went to any secondary school, I was sitting and, and the teacher explained that the Phoenicians had invented purple dye and I suddenly thought, good heavens 
purple is a colour and you assume it's always been there. How can it be invented by people? Well, I suppose it wasn't because there must have been purple flowers. But how, I, I, suddenly the idea that something that you took for granted hadn't been there. And I remember as a child thinking, this is so interesting. <laughs> so I think I did always feel, and I, I just had a, a really good history teacher at school. It was a very full education because she was very interested in the history of architecture and art. And I, I remember reading Eric Hobsbawm's Age of Revolution and re when I was a student and really liking that because he looked at culture as well as politics. Do you see yourself as a memoirist now, now that you've written two volumes of memoir? I want to write on the 80s, but I, I, I will... I don't that was going to be my next plans. question, actually. I don't have plans for anything beyond the 80s, really. Because there is a sort of... I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but there is this sort of, I want to say trick, I don't know what else to call it, there's this there's a necessity. The memoir writer has to... And you're explicit about this in the introduction, that you're not applying as best you can sort of retrospective judgment. You want to, to narrate as these events were experienced. Yes, I got obsessed with the 70s and then while I was waiting for the manuscript to be accepted and things I started to write on the 80s partly a bit melodramatically because I feel like um, perhaps I won't survive I've got because what was I'm in my late 70s and I'm thinking well you know people do die and then Covid bringing the idea a bit closer to so I kind of felt I'd better get on with this. But I think it's also that I can't really always cope with what's going on in the present, so I dive back to try to understand the past in order to think about the present too. But I, I do try to return to, as much as I can, to how I felt or how it seemed at the time, because I guess that's my training, I I get annoyed with things on television that are fictional, sort of fictional thing, versions of the past, and I get troubled by it when I can remember things that they're on about. Do you think that, because you, there's a sense throughout the new memoir and fairly explicitly at the end of it, that this history, it, it's a resource for activists, for feminists, for people interested in change now. Uh, I think you say, you know, in, in, you, you've written this in the hopes that you could, the people will pick out some of these strands and go beyond them. And I guess that was really my final question, just what strands do you think need to be recaptured and where would you like to see them go? Mm. I, I do, I mean, I think we were so worried about individual leadership that we would get a bit paralysed. I write a, about one group, in the women's separation group in Whitby, that got to the point when they nobody would speak because they were worried in case they might become, you know, leaders or something. So we did try rather excessively to overcome the problem of leadership, and that does lead to some problems. But I I do think that it's something that's very important. I mean, it's important for women to be able to express 
themselves in large numbers as opposed to a few exceptional women. But I think it's also important for the, for the men, who the types of men who are not full of themselves, sort of bombastic types, and there are lots, lots of men who feel uncomfortable and can understand why you would want to have a movement that enables everyone to express what they're saying. So I think that aspect is particularly important now. But the, the difficulty is that people, when it actually comes to the crunch, do look around for somebody who is the pivotal figure. And I honestly, I don't know what to do about that. In my case, I felt that I would trust Jeremy Corbyn because I felt he was such a reluctant kind of leader. <laughs> And, but other people I know didn't agree with that at all. They thought he should be much more assertive, more like a conventional leader. I think it's a very tricky problem that we didn't resolve, but I do feel that a democratic movement does need a good dose of, uh, I guess it's a kind of form of libertarianism and anarchism, in order to be able to develop lots of people. And women's liberation did bring a lot of confidence to those women who were involved in those early years in the 70s. I don't see how we would have, many of us would have gone on to do a lot of things. And somehow I think that that confidence seems to have been passed on. The young women now have a remarkable, seem to have a remarkable amount of confidence <laughs> compared to what my generation had. I don't know if... if that's a general observation, but I, I sort of hear them speaking and I think, whoa, that's so good. Many thanks to Sheila Roboth for taking part in this conversation. Her new memoir, Daring to Hope, My Life in the 70s, is published by Verso Books. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.